Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host. This is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, April 26, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. This live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. And if you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time. I'll try to monitor that and periodically answer questions as they come up. In these weekly live streams, uh, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news. And here's what I plan to cover today. On Monday this week, the court granted one new case for next term's calendar. So we'll, um, we'll talk about that. I'll describe what that case is about. On Tuesday this week, the court issued three opinions in argued cases. So again, I'll uh, go into some detail about each of those three new opinions. But before we get to that, uh, first briefly, some court news and also the latest uh, death penalty stay application. So the first bit of news is just a, a, a another uh, milestone. Um, on Friday, last Friday, that's April 20th, was uh, John Paul Stevens, retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens' 98th birthday. Now, Justice Stevens was appointed by uh, President Ford and uh, confirmed on uh, December 19th, 1975, and he served on the court until uh, June 29th, 2010. Uh, so almost 35 years, 34 and a half years on the court. And after his retirement, his seat was filled by Elena Kagan. Um, at 34 and a half years, he is the third longest serving Supreme Court justice, surpassed only by uh, Justice uh, Stephen Field, who was appointed back during the Civil War, and Justice uh, William O. Doug- Douglas, who served from 1939 to 1975. Um, interestingly, Justice Douglas retired from the court only about a month before Stevens uh, joined the court. Um, also, he retired uh, Justice Stevens at age 90 in 2010, and he, that made him the second oldest serving justice after only Oliver Wendell Holmes, who also retired at 90, but slightly older than Justice Stevens. Um, but now he's, he's uh, for the last few years, he's been the oldest living former justice. Um, the previous record holder was uh, Justice Stanley Reed, who had served on the court from 1938 to 1957. He retired from the court when he was 73 years old, but he lived to 95 years old. Uh, but uh, Justice Stevens has surpassed that at 98 years and counting. Um, and he, uh, Justice Stevens and his long career on the court, he he served for quite a bit of that time as kind of the anchor of the court's liberal wing. Um, he, interestingly, he, Stevens identified as a Republican and was appointed by Republican President uh, Gerald Ford, um, but that was before the parties were uh, as ideologically sorted as they are today, and it was before there was such uh, extreme attention paid to the ideology of judicial nominees. So despite uh, being um, uh identified as a Republican and appointed by a Republican, he was um, a, a uh, for, for a time, uh, arguably the most uh, liberal member of the court and kind of the uh, a key figure on the uh, that um, uh, side of the, the, uh, the court's uh, personnel. After his retirement in 2010, he stayed active uh, for a few years, um, writing two two books uh, that he that he published after his retirement. His first was a memoir in 2011 called the Five Chiefs," and and then uh, in 2014 he published a book called Six Amendments." Uh, the subtitle was "How and Why We Should Cha- We Should Change the Constitution," and he had a. Uh, uh, 
he was active as a public speaker um, and promoting those books um, for a while, uh, basically through 2016 and then tapering off into 2017. But for about the last year, he hasn't really had any uh, public appearances. Uh, earlier this year, he had a much-discussed op-ed in the New York Times advocating uh, the repeal of the Second Amendment. And that was a topic that he had written about in his book, Six Amendments, and he'd previously given some public speeches about it. Um, but uh, in the last year, that's kind of his only um, return to the spotlight. And there's not much information available about his current health or condition. But uh, again, 98th birthday for Justice, uh, retired Justice John Paul Stevens. Um Moving on, the uh, this week had uh, yet another um, death penalty stay application. Um, this was uh, for the um, the execution of uh, a criminal defendant named Eric Davila, who um, the execution was scheduled for yesterday. That's Wednesday, April twenty fifth, and Davila had been convicted of a two thousand uh, two thousand eight murders of a young girl and her grandmother um, that happened when he opened fire on a birthday party. Uh, apparently attempting to kill a rival gang member and instead killing that rival's daughter and mother. Um, the uh, Davila raised several legal claims in his uh, petition, his application to stay his execution. He had one claim for what's known as a Brady violation. That refers to um, the principle uh, that prosecutors have an obligation to turn over exculpatory evidence to the defense. And here uh, Davila had argued that uh, statements from his co-defendant um, showing that, or uh, helping to show that Davila was heavily intoxicated at the time of the shooting, which might be relevant to his mental state at the time of the murders, uh, were, were withheld from him. He also brought a, a, a due process claim, arguing that there was a conflict of interest because the current DA who was involved in, uh, at least in paperwork related to his uh, his um, ex- execution date, was actually the trial judge uh, in his trial earlier. Um, and he's argued that this creates a, a, a conflict of interest. It's kind of the reverse of the typical conflict of interest in these situations. It's well established that someone who has served as a prosecutor in a criminal case cannot later serve as a judge in that same case because the fact that they've been a party on one side of the case um, just makes them inevitably conflicted and they can't serve as a neutral in that. But this is kind of the reverse of that, saying that someone who served as the neutral party at an earlier phase um, can't serve as a prosecutor, which is, is uh, seems like a an odd uh, reverse of the typical claim. And then he also brought uh, a Sixth Amendment challenge that's a, uh, a, a um, uh, challenge to his um, uh, the the right to have a jury decide his uh, his his sentence, um, challenging the Texas uh, capital sentencing um, scheme under that. So he, he it was it was kind of a a variety of different claims that were brought. Um, but yesterday the court denied this uh, stay application with no noted uh, dissents, and uh, apparently the the justices did not find any of these uh, claims particularly um, strong. And Davila was later executed uh, yesterday. Um, finally, one more small piece of news before we move on to uh, digging into some of the cases. Uh, today, April 26th, the court submitted to Congress uh, various uh, amendments to uh, various federal rules of procedure. There's, this is the uh, federal rules of appellate procedure, bankruptcy procedure, civil procedure, and criminal procedure. And just one of the court's roles, apart from its uh, normal business of, um, of hearing and deciding cases, um, is in, in giving a final approval from the judicial branch of uh, changes to the, the rules uh, 
codes that, that govern the practice in the in the uh, the federal courts. Uh, these these the rules amendments to these rules are drafted by committees of the judicial conference, which is a body that is made up of just judges from various levels of the federal judiciary, um, put together by the chief justice. Um, but the the rules the, the rules that come out of those uh, committees of the judicial conference have to be approved by the Supreme Court and then uh, submitted on to Congress. And that is what happened today. The, the, the court um, forwarded on these uh, rules amendments. And this is a regular process that basically happens every year. There are new um, amendments uh, that are uh, uh, to, to the rules, various changes, most of them fairly minor, but occasionally some major revisions to particular rules. And today uh, that, that uh, happened. Um, earlier this week, the, the court heard six oral arguments, and these are the last arguments of the term. This is the last week of oral arguments from the term, and uh, as of yesterday, Wednesday, the court had heard its last oral arguments it's going to hear, and from here on out through the end of June, it's uh, just uh, the court will be focusing on just finishing all of its uh, outstanding opinions for all of the cases uh, that it has not yet decided on for this year's uh, Supreme Court term. Um, one interesting note is yesterday the court heard oral argument in one case. It was Trump v. Hawaii, which is the uh, travel ban litigation, uh, the, the uh, litigation over the legality and constitutionality of um, the President Trump's uh, proclamation barring uh, entry into the United States by nationals of certain countries. Um, the court uh, took the uh, unusual step, far from unprecedented, but unusual step of um, providing same-day audio of the um, oral arguments in that case. Now, the court's normal practice is every week that it has oral arguments, um, the audio from those arguments is released on Friday afternoon. Uh, now, arguments are heard Monday through Wednesday, and so there's a, a several-day uh, gap between when the arguments occur and when the audio is released uh, released to the public. Um, but occasionally in the past, the court has when there's been uh, high demand and requests from either uh, uh, you know, particular Congress people or from news media, the court has agreed to release um, same-day audio. Um, not live audio, but but same-day audio that's really shortly uh, after the conclusion of oral arg- arguments. And they agreed to do that again uh, this in, in this particular case. So that audio for Trump v. Hawaii is already available on the uh, Supreme Court's website as of yesterday afternoon. Um, the audio from Monday and Tuesday is still uh, coming with the normal release schedule and has not yet been released uh, until Friday. And this is uh, just an ongoing uh, um, <clears throat> discussion related to the, the issue of, of the court's transparency and the issue of whether the court should allow live broadcasts, uh, video broadcasts, uh, more public access um, through uh uh, recordings and 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 uh, broadcasts of the court's um, arguments, and uh, the court has been very resistant to that, and um, is seems to be resistant even to steps in that general direction. I think um, probably due to justices fearing that every step that they take toward that is makes it more difficult for them to resist um, what you know seems to many to be inevitable uh, the the uh, full live broadcast. Uh, Similar to the C-SPAN um, coverage of, uh, of of Congress, um, but that the uh, many of the justices have been uh, outspoken um, in opposition to. Um, <clears throat> uh, but anyway, let's uh, let's move on and, and start talking about uh, uh, the cases um, uh, of interest this week. Um, I mentioned there were three opinions, but before I get to those, I want to talk about the one new cert grant, the one new case that was granted that will be heard in the next Supreme Court term. Now, this is actually two 
uh, cases from the lower courts, but they're consolidated for argument at the Supreme Court. Um, that means that, that when the court has multiple cases uh, that are dealing with the same legal issue, it will sometimes take uh, a few of those cases, grant more than one of those cases, but consolidate them for a single hour of oral argument. Um, and uh, and that's what was done here with, with two cases ra- raising um, basically the, the same legal issue. Um, sometimes this uh, you'll, you'll see uh, when you see reporting of the court uh, doing certain things when it grants cases where the numbers of cases the court is hearing in a term, this leads to kind of some discrepancies between different different accountings. So, so you may see some news coverage that said the court granted two cases this week and others saying they granted one case. Uh, for the most part, it makes more sense to consider it as a single case. It's going to be heard in a single hour of oral argument. It'll be decided in a single opinion by the court uh, absent you know, unusual circumstances. So, um, it, typically the, it's, it's, uh, makes more sense just to consider it as a single case. Cause that's basically the way the court treats it. That brings the court up to nine total cases so far for next term. Um, these nine cases that have been issued so far, will probably most of them will end up on the court's October argument calendar though. Um, just due to briefing schedules and things, it's possible. Some could be pushed back to a, a later uh, month to November or something else. Um, but uh, nine cases so far, and again, we'll be watching that number through the end of June to see uh, how how the uh, court's fall calendar, um, fall docket seems to be shaping up. So about the actual cases, so the two cases below, these are criminal cases, and um, they're, they're, the, case, the cases are United States v. Stitt and United States v. Sims. And these are cases about uh, a statute called the Armed Career Criminal Act. Um, and this is a this is an act I, I've discussed previously on uh, on this podcast, but just to um, kind of uh, uh, summarize briefly what it's about, the Armed Career Criminal Act is a it provides a 15 year mandatory minimum sentence for someone convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm who has three prior violent felonies. Um, or violent felonies or certain drug offenses are also included. Um, <clears throat> But um, there has been a lot of litigation over what fits within this category of violent felonies. Now, violent felonies is defined uh, to include various different things, including various specific crimes. So the, the statute lists a number of specific crimes that qualify as violent felonies, and one of those crimes is burglary. However, burglary is not itself is not defined in the Armed Career Criminal Act. Um, and the issue is that the various states, um, so burglary, when someone is charged with burglary, typically we're talking about a state um, uh, burglary conviction. Most criminal law happens at the state level, not the federal level. The vast majority of criminal convictions happen in state court. Um, and these state convictions uh, can be the um, the prior felonies that, that qualify someone for the mandatory minimum under the, the Federal Armed Career Criminal Act. So... The courts need to figure out which state criminal offenses fit within these categories in the federal law. The problem is that states define many criminal offenses, and burglary is, is one of them, and they define them in very different ways. Um, so a court needs to decide which state offenses that are called burglary or are similar to burglary count as bur- burglary under the Armed Career Criminal Act. And the court has previously... Um, described what what counts as burglary and this is this is what the the court said the court said in, in in an older case that for the purposes of the armed criminal act burglary means 
any crime, regardless of its, of its exact definition or label, having the basic elements of unlawful or unprivileged entry into or remaining in a building or structure with intent to commit a crime. And the court refers to this as generic burglary. So the question here is, um, which particular state crimes qualify as that sort of generic burglary? Now, interestingly, traditionally, when we talk about uh, common law crimes, the, the traditional old definitions of crimes that were kind of inherited from the English uh, law at the, in the early days of the United States. Under tr- kind of traditional common law, burglary um, was was actually more specific than that. There were additional things that had to be proved. Typically, uh, the, it required proof that, that the, it wasn't just a building or structure, but it was a, a dwelling, that the burglary happened at night, that the person had an intent to commit a felony, not just any crime. But um, the generic burglary, as the Supreme Court defined it, is based on what the court saw as kind of the consensus view among the states about what burglary was in 1984, which is when the Armed Career Criminal Act was was um, enacted. And but at that point, uh, burglary had been defined uh, much more broadly than this kind of traditional common law um, uh, burglary. And so that uh, more broad definition uh, that was common in 1984 is kind of what the court was trying to capture. So the issue here is uh, the court, um, it uses something that, that it refers to as the, the categorical approach. And what the court says um, under this approach is, is basically if the elements of a state burglary crime, the elements meaning the, the specific things that have to be proven are the same as its description of generic burglary or narrower, so so they're, they're kind of encompassed within this generic burglary, then it counts for purposes of the Armed Career Criminal Act. Um, and the court, it's not looking at the specific facts of a particular defendant's crime, but it's looking at how that crime that they were convicted of is, def- is defined under state law. So these two separate cases here, the one involves a criminal defendant named Victor Stitt, and he has six convictions, prior convictions, for Tennessee aggravated burglary. And the other is uh, is a person named Jason Sims, who has two convictions for Arkansas residential burglary. So these are the two, these two particular cases that have been consolidated. These are, these are what's at issue. This Tennessee aggravated burglary and Arkansas residential burglary. And the, 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 the issue in each of these, um, the statutes are, are uh, different. They have different languages. They're kind of structured a little differently from each other. But the main per- point here is that both of these statutes, the Tennessee and the Arkansas one, along with just including a structure or a building, they can also include uh, vehicles. Um, if those vehicles are here's – the, here's language in the Tennessee statute. It says, including – a self-propelled vehicle that is designed or adapted for the overnight accommodation of persons and is actually op- occupied at the time of initial entry by the defendant. So that's 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 how the Tennessee one defines it. And then Arkansas, it's structured differently, but they refer to a vehicle, building, or other structure in which any person lives or that is customarily used for overnight accommodation of a person. So they 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 include vehicles um, in 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 the definition of what can count as uh, something that can be burglarized. Um, however, it's not just any vehicle. It's a vehicle that is in some way designed or adapted for um, overnight accommodation or is used, customarily used for overnight accommodation. So, you know, this this, this could be motorhomes or other um, uh, 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 structures like that, or I mean, um, you know, vehicles like that where people uh, people tend to, uh, you know, live or sleep in those, um, those, those vehicles. So the question here is, uh, do these... 
definitions, the Tennessee and the Arkansas definitions, fit within just generic burglary under the Armed Career Criminal Act. Um, now, the the defendants in these cases say that basically the court's previous cases that defined um, this generic burglary um, answer this question, and they um, they basically excluded vehicles and 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 the court previously um had some of the statutes that the court uh described as not fitting within its generic burglary were, were statutes that included um vehicles in in their definitions and so they they argue that this is basically already decided and the fact that vehicles are included means that there are crimes include that could be uh crimes that could be charged as Tennessee aggravated burglary or Arkansas residential burglary that don't fit within the generic burglary uh definition so therefore these crimes uh don't count now the united states is is arguing that that these crimes should count and they basically argue <clears throat> that um this these kind of mobile structures uh vehicles and such um they say in 1986, at the time when the court, um, when the Armed Career Criminal Act um, was uh, um, was enacted, uh, 43 states plus the District of Columbia covered mobile structures as as burglary. They also point to the Model P- Penal Code, um, and and they say that the, the definition of burglary in the Model Penal Code included uh, these kind of mobile structures. Now, the Model Penal Code. Is it's it's a, a project of an organization called the American Law Institute, and it was it was first published in 1962 after after years of of work by a a a, a group of, of mostly uh, law professors specializing in criminal law, and what it was was it was it was this major project to kind of draft what was seen as a a um, a uh, best practices kind of state of the art criminal code that was intended to be a model for American jurisdictions everywhere. Now, the model penal code itself is not the law anywhere. There's no state that's adopted it wholesale, but it's been highly influential in criminal law reforms in many states and pieces of it have been adopted all over the place in states uh, all over the nation. So it's considered very influential. And at the time that the Armed Career Criminal Act was enacted, the model penal code also included mobile, um, structures like vehicles and things could, could be included in the burglary definition. The United States also says that this basically fits the purpose of um, generic burglary too. It, it, it captures the burglaries that are kind of the most dangerous and the most invasive to people's privacy and sense of safety. And those are where people live and sleep. Um, and, the, the, the United States also argues that taking this narrow view that any time a statute includes vehicles in the definition of burglary, that that doesn't, um, doesn't count in some States. All types of burglary include uh, vehicle. Every every class of bur- burglary that's recognized in those states includes vehicles as part of the definition, and that would mean that in those particular states, no bur- burglaries at all would be included in the federal um, uh, Armed Career Criminal Act uh, um, categories. And and so they say that this this doesn't make sense. It's not the natural. Um, uh, expectation of Congress of what they were trying to cover. Um, and, and, and they also say that previous cases where, where the court referred to vehicles as being something that was outside of generic burglary, they were not focusing on vehicles that are um, being used as, as habitations, as places where people are sleeping. So that's the basic issue. So the court's going to have to wade into this again, the, the issue of the Armed Career Criminal Act and how to, um, how to decide how, how these state laws should fit into these uh, federal categories. So, Moving on from there, let's talk about the three new opinions that were granted this week. First, just let's go over the numbers again. There's three new decisions. The court 
is continuing its uh, relatively slow pace of, uh, of, of putting out opinions. We're now up to 23 opinions, uh, for the term out of a total of 62 expected. That means there's 39 more opinions, um, that are due to come down. That's uh, cases that have been argued, um, from October. There's still some, the, the first month of arguments for the term is October. There's still some October cases that are outstanding, um, all the way through the brand new cases that were just argued. Uh, this week, the six cases that were just argued earlier this week and six cases last week and earlier months. So that, that adds up to 39 more opinions. There's only nine weeks left until the end of uh, June when the court um, wraps up its work and goes on its summer recess. So that means, you know, they have to average four to five opinions per week. Now, they're always fairly backloaded. Um, but this year they, they seem to be especially, uh, heavily heavy toward the, uh, the end of the term. So, um, you know, there's no telling exactly when any particular opinions are coming down, but, um, you know, we should expect them to start coming uh, pretty fast and furious, uh, any time now in order for them to get done by the end of June. And the general, the, the court is very, um, firm about it's it, the the june deadline it's a self-imposed deadline there's nothing that requires the court to get all its cases decided by the end of june but the court has year in year out the court uh has has met that deadline and uh the justices don't want to be delayed from their um summer travel and other um uh you know obligations and and uh so that's a deadline that no one really expects them to miss um so we should be seeing a lot of uh, opinions coming down soon so let's uh, let's look at uh, those three opinions. The first one, um, let's see. The first one uh, is a case called. Um, it's referred to as Oil States, Oil States Energy Services, uh, the uh, Greens Energy Group, and um, this case it was a seven to two decision. Um, with Justice Thomas writing for the seven justice majority and a dissent uh, by Justice Gorsuch joined by Justice Roberts. So here we see here a, a um, if, you, if you've been following the court for a little bit since uh, Justice Gorsuch joined uh, just a little over a year ago, one of the themes has been that Gorsuch and Thomas were uh, very closely aligned and have continued to be very closely aligned in many cases. Um, and uh, and it was it was noted that uh, that uh, courses seem to be very following in Thomas's uh, footsteps on the court. Um, but this is uh, an example, and this is not the first one, but this is an example of Gorsuch and Thomas on opposite sides, and here writing directly against each other, um, with with Thomas writing the majority and Gorsuch writing a dissent. So um, you know the two are far from uh, in lockstep agreement on everything, um, though though it's certainly true that they are um, uh, often. Um, uh, in in close agreement, um, but uh, again, so so it was seven to two with Justice Thomas writing for the majority. Now this this is a case; uh, it's a patent law case, and and there's two patent law cases among the uh, the three decisions this week, and they're they're closely related. Um, we'll get to the uh, the other one in a little bit, but um, what it revolves around is both of these cases revolve around a a process known as um, inter partes review or IPR for short. And this is a relatively new process, a new um, procedure that came um, in in, in uh, a statute known as the America Invents Act, which was a 2012 law that made um, some uh, fairly major uh, changes to America's patent to American patent law. Um, and one of the changes that was made to it involved this new process called Inter Partes Review (IPR), which is a it's an ad- adversarial process for for re- re-examining um, patents uh, by the PTO. And so the, the way it works is a party, if, if someone thinks that a patent that was previously issued by the PTO um, is, is invalid, 
Uh, this can be either for, for, so two of the requirements that have to be met in order to obtain a patent are that the patent is novel. So meaning it's, it's something new. It's something that hasn't been done before. Um, and that is non-obvious, meaning, uh, it isn't just a, a, a obvious extension from something that's done previously that was kind of, um, isn't really adding anything new that, that, uh, someone, uh, skilled in that particular area wouldn't have already, um, wouldn't be obvious to them and they wouldn't already have known from the previous existing inventions. Um, and so the, uh, under this, pro- this process, if someone thinks some uh, patent is invalid because it doesn't actually meet these novelty and non-obvious, uh, requirements, they can uh, petition to the PTO to have that patent re-examined. Now, there were previously, before the American Invents Act, there were some previous procedures that were uh, similar to this. There's, there was an older procedure called ex parte re-exam and, uh, and another one called inter partes re-exam uh, that's different from the new inter partes review. Um, and these were older procedures, but the new IPR is has been much more... Um, it's been used much more and it's been considered a much more effective way um, for uh, critics of a particular patent's validity to have that patent um, canceled by the PTO. Now, this was motivated, this procedure was motivated by concerns that the PTO had been approving too many bad patents. Um, there was an argument that, that, that there needed to be a more robust method of um, reviewing and weeding out bad patents after they had been issued. Um, and th- this IPR process is a lot cheaper than litigation um, about uh, patent invalidity. So, so bringing bringing a, a lawsuit in federal court to challenge the validity of a patent it's, is an incredibly expensive undertaking. And so, IPR is a uh, cheaper method of of doing that. And um, there has been uh, a a much higher rate of, of these patent cancellations under the new IPR process. There's a lot of strong disagreement um, between proponents and opponents of the IPR process over what this means. The people in favor of this IPR process say that this is, is good. It shows how many bad patents have been slipping through the system and being approved as patents. And uh, and this is uh, doing uh, the, the good work of weeding these out. However, critics of the IPR process say that basically the system is is destroying uh, valuable patents that uh, companies have put tons of money in, and then creating this extra hurdle after the fact, where they're they're having these patents taken away from them. Um, and so here the here's 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 what's at issue in this case. This is a, actually a constitutional challenge to the uh, um, this this whole uh, IPR process, um, and. The the issue is uh, here's the basic facts of the case. It involves these two companies, Oil States Energy Services and Greens Energy Group, and they're both um, oil field services companies. And Oil States, they uh, got a patent related to uh, fracking, hydraulic fracturing, and they they sued um, the Greens Energy Group in federal court um, for patent infringement. Now, in that suit, Greens uh, Energy Group challenged the validity of the Oil States patent. But also outside of the litigation, they petitioned the PTO for inter partes review. So this IPR process, they to to so they were challenging the validity in two separate ways. One as kind of a defense in there in the patent infringement suit, and one as a separate um, uh, IPR process in the in the patent office. Now the federal court ended up ruling against Green's Energy Group on their on their invalidity claim, but the IPR process in the in the patent in, the in trademark office in the PTO found that the patent was invalid and canceled the patent's claims. Um, now, the, 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 just as an interesting aside that's not relevant to this case, the 
challenges to patents validity in federal court and in the uh, the IPR process actually have uh, different legal standards, um, which so which is kind of just another oddity um, to these. Uh, these two different methods of trying to uh, invalidate a patent, but moving on. So the the issue here is the the claim is the legal claim is that this uh, cancellation of a patent in this uh, inter partes review process is basically it's, it's since these patents have already been exi- uh, uh, issued these these are property rights patents are a valuable piece of property for the patent holders and the IPR cancellation is basically eliminating this existing property right. Um, but it's doing that without um, having any uh, a court, uh, a, a court of law, um, having a role in that process, and also uh, without uh, a right to a jury, um, which is a, a right under the Seventh Amendment in, uh, in certain uh, types of civil cases. So, the majority opinion by Justice Thomas um, he, he argues that basically it draws a distinction. And it, and it talks about previous precedents and and, uh, and a historical distinction between uh, what's referred to as public and private rights. Now, it says um, it acknowledges that the, the cases are not entirely consistent and the distinction isn't always well defined. But it says in this case, it clear this IPR process and the patents, the patent rights, patent grants fall within um, this, this public rights category. And what the court basically says is that a patent is basically it's it's a grant from the government of of of, of something new. It's taking something from the public, the right to um, exercise a certain invention, taking something that was uh, open to all in the public. And and giving it to one party, the patent holder, um, and the, and this is it refers to this as a public franchise. This is kind of like like a monopoly right that the government can grant to a private party, like uh, the right to operate a toll road in a particular area or something like that. And they say that when when the government is granting a new right to some private party, so it's as between the government and this private party, it's granting some new right that the government can reserve the power to uh, to alter that grant at a later point. So the government can say it's granting this patent subject to these later um, reexamination procedures that could uh, could cut back or, or eliminate the patent. Um, and, and that's in contrast with kind of. Um, Private rights, which is just disputes between multiple private parties, not 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 something just granted to a single party by the government, but a dispute between two par- private parties over their rights, um, which which uh, the the court says is is, is um, that's kind of the domain of uh, the the federal courts um, and and uh, and the jury right. Um, <clears throat> and the court also in Justice Thomas's uh, position uh, opinion, he rejects. The, uh, the the common analogy that's made between patents and and real property, uh, real estate and and physical uh, and land, um, saying that that you know while that that is a useful analogy in many circumstances, it's only an analogy. It's only good as far as it goes, and they're really not the same thing because of the the public grant um, nature of of a patent. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Justice Thomas kind of. Part of the argument, he goes through the the history, the English history prior to the uh, adoption of the uh, U.S. Constitution, and uh, argues that under English law, a uh, executive body known as the Privy Council, the English Privy Council, had the power to cancel patents. Um, and this kind of shows that at the time of the Constitution's adoption, this was seen as this kind of uh, monopoly grant from the government, um, and and uh, it's not the sort of thing that's exclusively the province of the courts. Um, and, uh, interesting thing about this opinion is, is that it carves out quite a few things that it explicitly says it's not 
addressing. It says it doesn't address uh, patent infringement, uh, which which is you know a dispute between two private parties. It's only talking about validity of a patent in these uh, the IPR um, proce- proceedings, um, which is just between the the grantee and the government. Um, it also says it doesn't address the issue of retroactivity. So what about a patent that was granted prior to the American Invents Act? Um, and in fact, the patent issue in this case was granted before that act was uh, was enacted, but it, the retroactivity issue wasn't raised by the parties to the case. The court's not addressing it in this case. And it also doesn't address due process concerns. Now, this is an issue that came up a lot uh, in the criticisms of this IPR process that uh, allegedly the PTO has in, in, uh, engaged in some uh, what's uh, been uh, seen uh, kind of a characterized as very suspect or shady activity, what has been referred to as panel stacking, where the uh, the the PTO, the director of the PTO, has placed particular judges on the panels reviewing these specifically for the purpose of trying to find certain patents invalid. Um, or when a, a panel has found a patent, uh, upheld a patent and found it's valid, um, the uh, the uh, director has had that patent re-reviewed with a, a larger panel, adding more judges to it, attempting to get a, a different result. And this is, these are very, you know, concerning allegations that have, uh, that um, have, uh, uh, brought a lot of criticism to the PTO's process, but the court says that's not the issue that's being addressed here. They're just talking about the um, the IPR's constitutionality generally, and it's not saying that that you couldn't bring those as uh, separate due process concerns about the way the IPR process is being used. Um, and it also says it's not suggesting that um, patents still can't be treated like property for other purposes, for example, takings claims if the government tries to seize uh, someone's patent away from them or something like that. So that's the that's the basic shape of um, Justice Thomas's majority opinion. Now, there's a, a very brief concurrence by Justice Breyer joined by uh, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor, and they, they agree with the majority opinion by Justice Thomas. However, um, they make the point, Justice Breyer makes the point in this one paragraph, he, he says that that um, that he doesn't take... Uh, doesn't um, want uh, take the majority's opinion to be um, implying that private rights can never be adjudicated outside of Article Three courts. So he agrees when you're dealing with public rights, that's not the sort of thing that um, that that uh, that has to go to courts. It's something that that an executive agency can deal with on its own in these in a proceeding like this. But he he doesn't want to imply that private rights must go to a court and can also be dealt with in some circumstances by these uh, administrative bodies. So so that's he's just kind of reserving that issue um, and and. Uh, 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 suggesting that that he would go even further than Justice Thomas. Now, I, I mentioned there was a dissent by Justice Gorsuch, and the dissent by Justice Gorsuch kind of takes a very different characterization of patents. So, where um, Justice Thomas's majority characterizes patents as these public franchises, as these kind of monopoly rights granted um, to, by the government to some private party, Gorsuch uh, points to a long history of of treating uh, these as 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 property rights. Um, as uh, he, he refers to, kind of the the all of the the work and effort by parties, uh, the inventing parties in in, in um, developing the, uh, the the invention, uh, they go and then and the patent is more of kind of a recognition of a property right that they've developed by by virtue of their novel and uh, and uh, useful um, labor that they put into it, um, and. Uh, Gorsuch also has kind of a different view of the relevant history, and he argues that the Privy Council, the English Privy, Privy Council that the majority referred to, by the time of the American founding, 
the Privy Council really wasn't adjudicating patent validity anymore. After the mid 1700s, it had really ceased doing that. And, and late cases that some people tried to bring to the Privy Council uh, kind of demonstrate that the Privy Council really wasn't in that business anymore and that the, the courts were seen by that time as the only appropriate um, appropriate form for trying to uh, invalidate a patent. And and he argues that basically this shift from the Privy Council in England to uh, exclusively using the courts for patents, it parallels the shift from a view of patents as kind of feudal favors. He refers to them as feudal favors, a, a, just a grant of a monopoly right by the government to something that is, that is really a, a property right. And that this is reflected in the Constitution's kind of description of patents where it refers to promoting the progress of science and useful arts um, rather than just uh, just some sort of monopoly grant. Um, so uh, it's, it's just uh, two very different characterizations of the role, uh, you know, kind of patents play in our, our, our legal system, how they should be characterized and how they should be thought of the relation between a patent holder and the government. So that's, that's, uh, that's it for that. So, so, the court uh, upholds the uh, interparties review, the IPR process, uh, says it's constitutional and it can go forward. So that brings us to the next case. Now, this is a case called SAS Institute v. Yanku. Now, this is another case about interparties review. This time, it's a technical question about how the review process is supposed to proceed. And this court, interestingly, this divided, although it was not necessarily obvious that it would, um, this is the type of case that would go that way, but this court divided five to four along the stereotypical conservative liberal lines, um, with a, uh, a five justice, uh, conservative majority, uh, opinion written by Justice Gorsuch. Um, but the split, it's really, it's, uh, it's over, uh, methods of statutory interpretation. Now, there's kind of an interesting aside about this court that came up when this, when this, uh, opinion was issued on Tuesday. Um, the court is an institution that, that's very tradition-bound, and many of the court's procedures, seniority plays a, a large role. And this, this is the things kind of big and small. This includes when multiple justices join a particular opinion, the, their names are always listed in, in, uh, in order of decreasing seniority. Um, when uh, there are concurring or dissenting Opinions in a case. Um, these are these are uh, by multiple justices. These will be listed in order of declining seniority. Their order of seating on the bench at oral arguments, and even when they're sitting for official court photographs, is based on seniority by a particular arrangement. And also, their seating in their private conference and the order that they vote um, is all based on seniority. So seniority is all over the place. Now, one of the places that seniority plays a role. It's just an odd little quirk um, is when multiple opinions are issued on the same day. So when the court is issuing opinions from the bench and there are multiple opinions, they're issued in order of increasing seniority. So uh, based on the, the authoring judge of the majority opinion. So when there are multiple opinions, the first opinion to be announced will be whatever opinion was written by the most junior justice that's announcing an opinion that day. And it's interesting because um, court watchers who are kind of watching this unfold when, when a particular opinion is um, is announced by a particular ju- justice, normally that means that any additional opinions that will be announced um, will only will, would be from either that same justice or some more senior justice than that as you went along. So you can kind of eliminate when one justice uh, issues an opinion, any justice that's more junior than that justice um, uh, can be assumed not to have any opinions that day, um, which... Um, some court watchers uh, kind of make a game of trying to 
predict based on on uh, on the opinions as they come out, which justices will be writing uh, which opinions that have yet to be issued. And you know, this is it's uh, it's um, it's very speculative, and it's uh, kind of no one can ever figure this out with any degree of certainty. But um, you know. Uh, People who pay very close attention to the court can also often make some pretty educated guesses for certain cases of who will be writing them. And then this order of opinion announcements uh, can tip them off of, of whether an opinion may or may not be released that particular day. It's just a just an odd little thing. But here um, – Something odd happened. Normally, so Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch, when both of those uh, justices issue opinions on the same day, um, normally Justice Gorsuch would be issuing an opinion first. Here, court watchers were surprised. Justice Thomas issued the opinion in the oil states, the one we just discussed. And that was immediately followed by Justice Gorsuch issuing this opinion in SAS Institute. Um, and that kind of caught people off guard because it's out of the normal order. Now, the consensus is there's an obvious explanation, which is that this case, which deals with a particular question about the procedure for the IPR, the inter partes review, this would have been completely irrelevant if the court had invalidated IPR review, had found that it was unconstitutional in the first place. This court, this case kind of has to assume the existence of IPR as a, as a valid um, method of, uh, of re-examining patents. Um, and if the court had issued this opinion first, it kind of would have been a, a spoiler. It would have given away the result in oil states um, before before uh, that, that case was even announced. Um, and it's possible, this is just purely speculative, but there's a possibility that this case, this SAS Institute case, this opinion may have been ready earlier. It might have been ready at an earlier week or some earlier time in the term, but was being held until oil states was finished. Um, because, uh, you know, basically the, this case depends on oil states in order to, uh, to, um, be, be, uh, um, worth anything at all. And technically, um, until an opinion is released to the public, it's not final and, 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 uh, justices can change their votes at any time. Now, given that oil states was a seven to two opinion, it wasn't likely that anything was going to change at the last minute, but, you know, technically speaking, nothing was final. Um, so maybe they were holding this case waiting for oil states. So that's just a, a little aside about just quirks of Supreme Court procedure. Um, but let's move on and talk about the actual case. So, so the issue here is pretty simple. The statute that, that establishes this, uh, the IPR, the Inter Partes Review, it gives the Patent and Trademark Office discretion about whether to initiate um, the IPR. So a, a private party petitions the PTO and says that a particular patent um, has uh, it should be should be found to be invalid, um, and then the PTO looks at that and decides whether or not it, it wants to um, initiate that. Now, um, and, and the basis is it has to decide that at least one or more of the claims in the patent um, are are likely to uh, to be to be found invalid. Now, um, just briefly, claims. What are claims? A patent has one or more claims, and a claim is just the technical definition of the covered invention. So, the claim it defines certain elements that have to be um, included to to make up a particular patent, and um, Claims are extremely important because that really specifically defines what a patent covers and some invention later that, that, um, that, uh, includes the elements that are in a particular claim, uh, can be, can infringe that earlier patent. So 
but a patent may have multiple claims. It's very common for a patent to have multiple claims. These are typically just uh, various like variations on a particular invention, or they may be broader or narrower versions of the claimed invention, but a patent may have a number of different claims. And each claim has to meet those same standards of being novel and non-obvious. Um, now, the, so someone can, can challenge one or more claims of a patent, um, and if the IP, if, if the PTO finds that at least one of their challenges, uh, is, is viable, you know, it look, looks good, then the PTO has the discretion to, um, initiate the IPR process. Um, however, the, another part of the statute says that when the IPR process completes, the PTO must, and here's a quote, must issue a final written decision with respect to the patentability of any patent claim challenged by the petitioner. So the question here is, what if the PTO thinks that the challenge to some of the patent's claims have merit and are worth um, digging into and reviewing, but challenges to others of the claims are meritless and the PTO doesn't want to waste its time on them? Can it conduct an IPR only on the challenges that it thinks are viable? Or does it have to conduct the IPR on all claims? That's that's the issue here. Um, and the the... The, the, the PTO's process um, is that the internal process and, and under regulations enacted by the PTO, the PTO director decides when uh, when, it, when it reviews one of these petitions for, for um, IPR, um, it uh, decides not only just whether to institute IPR, but to institute IPR on some subset of the claims. So it may institute IPR, but only on certain challenge claims and not all challenge claims. And the argument here is that's under the statute. That is not um, legitimate. Uh, that's not something that they're allowed to do. Now, the specific facts in this case were this company SAS, um, it challenged all 16 claims in a patent by another company called Complementsoft. Now, the director of the PTO instituted the IPR on only nine out of the 16 claims. Of the nine claims that were reviewed, um, eight of those nine claims ended up being canceled by the PTO, but the PTO, the PTO didn't address the other seven claims that the director didn't feel merited review. So the majority opinion, this was written by Justice Gorsuch and joined by the uh, other conservative justices, it focused on the specific language um, of, of, of this saying that the PTO shall issue um, rulings on and quote any patent claim, and it says this language is mandatory language. It's comprehensive language. Um, it, it refers to any patent claim in um, uh, of the petitioner, and um, it says that the PTO had argued that any patent claim should be read narrowly, only to refer to those claims accepted into the IPR process. Um, but the the majority here, but this is uh, Justice Gorsuch, says the IPR process is initiated by the challenger's petition. It's not um, initiated by the director choosing claims that it wants to examine. It's initiated by, initiated by a petition that comes in, um, and uh, which is required to describe the challenged claims and the basis for the challenge. Um, and the discretion that the director has is to decide only whether to institute IPR. And, and it's uh, instituting IPR, quote, pursuant to a petition. It's whether to institute IPR pursuant to a petition, not um, not whether to institute IPR pursuant to specific claims in a petition. And not not uh, it doesn't give the discretion to choose the scope of the IPR, only to choose whether to start it or not. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the the the, the uh, 
so the, basically, Justice Gorsuch's opinion is a, a, a very textualist opinion, meaning it focuses very carefully on the very specific language of the patent statute, and um, from that tries to discern, you know, uh, what what exactly is required or and, and allowed, and compares the similar language used in various portions of this uh, IPR statute, um, and uh, and and comes to the conclusion that just the the PTO's approach. Um, this kind of partial IPR review is not something that's at all, that's uh, called for by the statute and is not a a legitimate approach for the PTO to take. Um, the court also uh, talks uh, about um, some policy arguments. Um, the the uh, the argument on the patent uh, the PTO side for for this kind of selective review of particular claims is this is just a more efficient use of the board's resources on viable challenges. And since the board has discretion to review or not review, why should it waste its time um, reviewing particular uh, claims that just there isn't there isn't a a, a good reason to to uh, to question. Um, on the other hand, um, the, the, there's an argument on the other side that uh, this uh, requiring the uh, PTO to issue a ruling on all of the claims that are challenged, it brings together all the claims in a single proceeding. It doesn't require a challenger to kind of split its challenges between the agency and a court. Um, but the majority says, you know, there's these policy arguments going both ways, but it's not the court's role to choose between these policy objectives. That's just the role of Congress, and the court's job is just to look at the language of the statute and and and, and apply it. Um, one other issue that that the comes up that the court talks about is something known as Chevron deference, and this is a doctrine that that arose uh, um, in in a, a case from from the 1980s from the Supreme Court um, where. Um, the, the basic policy is when Congress passes a law that is vague or ambiguous, the, the courts are supposed to give deference to an agency's reasonable interpretation of those vague and ambiguous laws. Um, now, the court says, uh, Justice Gorsuch says, that the, this, this, this deference is it's only applicable when the statute is, is actually ambiguous after employing the traditional tools of statutory interpretation. And, and Gorsuch says that this kind of partial institution of the IPR process is, is wholly absent from the statute, and it's really not ambiguous about what the, the actual language of the statute calls for. So he rejects um, giving this kind of deference. Now, um, there, there is uh, two dissents. There's, there's a very short dissent by Justice Ginsburg and uh, the uh, longer dissent by Justice Breyer. So I'll talk about Justice Breyer's dissent first. Justice Breyer says that um, he, he approaches it um, directly from kind of this Chevron deference perspective, from the perspective of whether there's uh, some kind of ambiguity or, or gap in the statute that uh, has been left for the agency to fill. And he, he says that basically he focuses on this particular language, that um, that the PTO is supposed to issue a, a determination on, quote, any patent claim challenged by the petitioner. And he says this doesn't say challenged by petitioner in the original petition. You could read this as challenged by the petitioner in the inter partes review proceeding. So any any claim that's challenged in this proceeding that has already weeded down the claims to a, a subset. Um and he says that this particular provision uh, requiring this determination on any claim challenged uh, occurs in, in the part of the uh, the uh, the statute that's dealing with the IPR process, not the early part that's talking about the contents of a petition. And, and he points to the purpose. The director of the PTO is given a, a broad discretion on whether or not to institute an IPR. Why would Congress want to give this overall discretion on whether or not to institute but deny this narrower discretion on on allowing claim by claim um, 
uh, re-examination in the process. And then Breyer goes on to talk about um, Chevron deference specifically. Interestingly, Breyer notes that he views Chevron. So Chevron deference usually has this uh, well-known two-step process that courts are supposed to go to. They first see if the particular issue has been um, explicitly resolved by this language of the statute. And then if not, they ask whether the uh, agency's interpretation is reasonable. Um, and Breyer basically says he he doesn't hold to that um, that rigid two step process, but only he uses Chevron kind of as a loose rule of thumb about uh, the need to give deference to agencies. This this is uh, Breyer has long been kind of a sh- uh, skeptic of Chevron, a critic of it. Now uh, Chevron is a very controversial doctrine. Um, in, in recent years, but most of the criticism of Chevron comes from, uh, what's m- more the, the conservative side of the, uh, the legal, um, spectrum. Um, but Breyer is, has a, is a long time kind of Chevron, uh, critic or skeptic, uh, coming from the, the, uh, the more liberal side. Um, part of that is, is Breyer's very distinctive, uh, dislike of rigid rules of any type and, and his more, his, uh, uh, appreciation of, of more, um, flexible, um, less uh, determinate um, standards. Um, but interestingly, that one specific paragraph where he des- de- describes his kind of loose approach to Chevron, Justice Kagan uh, explicitly refused to join that paragraph of his opinion. Um, and Justice Kagan is much more of a formalist. She really um, uh, puts much more weight in specific uh, legal um, uh, bright line rules and, and uh, rigid legal categories. So it's kind of, uh, it's just interesting to see this, uh, this uh, distinction between these two justices. Um, and in any case, um, Justice Breyer concludes that this statute's complexity and its delegation of authority to the agency should lead the courts to give great deference here. He points out that the agency went through the formal rulemaking process, which kind of gives more weight to its determination, and says that this is basically a reasonable exercise of the PTO's authority. So he thinks that they, the court should have upheld this uh, partial review process. Now, there was also a short dissent by Justice Ginsburg, also joined by the other three dissenting justices, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And, and she just points out that the director could basically do an end run around the majority's decision. She says the director could deny if, if, if someone filed a petition and the director thought only some of the claims were viable, the director could deny this petition while indicating to the party that um, the PTO would be willing to accept a more limited petition that only challenged certain claims. And, and that would allow the director through this kind of two-step process, deny, but indicate to the party that they would accept a narrower one. And then, you know, assuming the party refiles their petition, a more limited petition, then accept that. Um, and so Ginsburg basically argues that there's no sense in requiring people to jump through these hoops when they can work around like this. Gorsuch did respond to this argument in his majority opinion, saying just because the director may be able to maneuver around the requirements of the law doesn't justify the court rewriting or changing the law on that basis. So, so he makes that, uh, it's, it's, uh, but it's interesting because, uh, Ginsburg seems here to just be kind of giving her advice to the PTO about, well, you know, saying, I think the majority decided this case wrong PTO. Here's how you can get around it and, uh, keep doing what you've been doing anyway. So it's just, uh, interesting to, to, to see that, uh, that little concurrence there. That brings us to the last of the three opinions issued this week. Um, this, this opinion is, is a very long opinion and, uh, with a bunch of different, uh, uh, different uh, opinions, different, uh, concurrence and dissents. Um, and, 
somewhat complicated, but I'll try and run through pretty quickly what this is about. The case is called Jesner v. Arab Bank. Now, this is a case about something called the Alien Tort Statute. And the Alien Tort Statute was a provision of the Judiciary Act of 1789. That was an act by the very first Congress that established, first established the Supreme Court and the federal judicial uh, system, the federal court system. Um, and this opinion, this also divided along the five, four stereotypical conservative liberal lines. The lead opinion was by Justice Kennedy, um, joined by the other four conservatives. However, um, Kennedy only had a majority for parts of his opinion. Um, he was joined completely by uh, just Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, but Justices Gorsuch and Alito wrote uh, separate concurrences, and they only joined parts of Kennedy's opinion. And then there's dissent by Justice Sotomayor, um, joined by the uh, the other three uh, more liberal justices. So here's here's the basic idea of what this case is about. Now, the plaintiffs in this case were. Um, they were representatives of people who had been killed or injured by terrorists overseas. Now, this this was dealing with terrorist attacks in the Middle East over about a 10-year period. And there were allegations that Arab Bank, which is a major uh, Jordanian financial institution, um, Arab Bank is liable for these terrorist acts for facilitating the transfer of money to terrorists. There's accusations that they maintained accounts for terrorist groups and also that they facilitated, they allowed payments um, to be made to the families of suicide bombers. Um, and th- there's also, there's a, a, a kind of, uh, s- some connection between uh, this this uh, Middle Eastern terrorism and uh, Jordanian um, financing and the United States because Arab ba- Bank has a branch in the uh, in New York City and some dollar denominated payments were processed through Arab Bank's New York branch. So that's kind of the American connection uh, to the, to this case. Now the Alien Tort Statute is is, is a little um, uh, complicated. What what, it, what it's all about. And the Alien Tort Statute is a jurisdictional statute. Uh, this is the language in, in, the, in the current version of the this, this statute. It says, the district courts shall have original jurisdiction of any civil action by an alien for a tort only committed in violation of the law of nations or treaty of the United States. Now, here's the thing. Normally, a jurisdictional statute uh, it just establishes uh, types of cases that courts are allowed to hear. So just as an example, there's a, there's a, there's a federal statute that, that establishes something called federal question jurisdiction. Here's, here's the statute reads. It says, the district court shall have original jurisdiction of all civil actions arising under the constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States. Now, that just says when, when there's, uh, when there's a, a civil action that arises under federal law, then the district courts can can have jurisdiction over that, but but that doesn't get you into court. In, in order to get into court under that that um, that type of jurisdiction, you have to have some other statute that provides you with the actual legal claim. So maybe you have a civil rights statute. You might have a, a you know Title Seven uh, discrimination claim or a um, age discrimination claim or an antitrust claim or uh, any of the many different federal statutes that provide um, civil claims and those provide the legal rights that you can sue over and the jurisdictional statute just says, well, if you have those legal rights under federal law, then you can get into the courts. Now the alien tort statute is a jurisdictional statute. It says that an alien, the, the courts have jurisdiction of a civil action by an alien for a tort committed in violation of the laws of law of nations. So, but it doesn't, but it doesn't provide the actual cause of action, the actual legal right that you're suing over, just as there's jurisdiction. So briefly, 
there is a previous case of the Supreme Court from 2004 that's very important here. It's called Sosa v. Alvarez Machain. And that, that case involved the, the, the Alvarez Machain was, had someone who he had been kidnapped in Mexico by Sosa, who was a Mexican national, and he had been kidnapped at the behest of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. Um, and he brought this suit under the, uh, alien tort statute suing Sosa. Um, for this kidnapping, saying it was in violation of the law of nations. Now, the court in that case decided that even though the alien tort statute is jurisdictional, when it was enacted, now keep in mind this is way back in 1789, it was in, at a time when there was a, a general understanding there was there was something known as the general common law, um, which was just kind of a it was viewed as a kind of a collective enterprise by various different common law courts to kind of discern common principles that it could apply to various um, uh, cases. And, and the idea then was that, that courts in some sense were kind of finding out what the law was by kind of this general um, discerning these general principles of law that they could apply. Um, and, and at that time, that's how torts in violation of the law of nations would have been determined to exist, not by a particular statute that was passed by Congress, but by courts kind of figuring out what kind of things qualified as violations of the law of nations. Um, the court, but the, 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 the issue is that there was kind of a major shift in, in American legal thought and it kind of culminated in, uh, in a case in uh, 1938, it's, it's referred to as Erie. This is a very uh, important case that law students study um, in their first year of law school. But the the, the general, I, the important part for purposes of this is that the, the court basically, the Supreme Court in that case in 1938, basically rejected the whole concept of this general common law. And and since that time, the kind of the general consensus view is that um, it's not court's job to kind of um, discern this general common law, they're really supposed to be relying on primarily on statutory law passed by legislatures. That's a kind of an oversimplification, but that's the, the, the basic idea here. So the argument is in, in modern statutes that provide jurisdiction, courts don't just make up causes of action that can be brought under that. They look to the court for, for statutes um, that, that, uh, that define what kind of uh, claims can be brought. Um, but the court said because the original understanding of this was that courts were going to kind of define and create these um, you know, what these torts and violation of the law of nations were, that that, that kind of the, the existence of this jurisdictional statute, the alien tort statute, means that courts really still have this role to recognize new causes of actions, new legal claims based on the present day law of nations, meaning kind of international law generally. Um, and and so that so that's that's kind of the background here that that Sosa case is that's what they decided there. Now the specific question in this case is asking whether corporations can be held liable under the Alien Tort Statute. So the issue here is is they're bringing this against this bank, and and the question is can a corporation be held liable under the Alien Tort Statute? Now in U.S. law, normally corporations can can be held liable. Uh, are routinely held liable for all sorts of torts and other uh, statutory violations uh, of various types. Um, but the argument here is that um, 
under the Alien Tort Statute, we're discerning the law of nations, so the international law. What, what does international law say about this? Is there a consensus under international law that corporations can be held liable for human rights violations? And the argument is that basically international human rights law doesn't, as a general rule, have corporate liability. The United States is actually something of an outlier in the extent to which it uses corporate liability, and, and many other nations and many international processes don't use uh, corporate liability. There's a preference to targeting specific individuals in a corporation that are responsible for wrongdoing rather than uh, applying it to the corporation as a whole. So that, that's the, ar- the argument uh, against uh, international law having this kind of corporate liability. On the other hand, there's an argument that says that um, really what, what the alien torts, what the court's role in deciding um, whether there's a, you know, claim under the alien tort statute is just to decide whether that the international norm is something that's, that, uh, that is well established. So the norm would be about supporting terrorism and whether you can hold a corporation liable is just a question about, um, about the, uh, remedial regime, about how, um, uh, how you're going to, uh, compensate people. And, 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 and that's just a matter of local law, of the, of the domestic law of whatever country is applying it. That's not the issue of international law. International law should just be asking what types of acts is there a consensus are a violation of the law of nature of nations and then allow, you know, the individual nation's laws to determine how you remedy that. That's the argument on the other side. Now, the lead opinion by Justice Kennedy basically argues that, um, that, that, the court should be hesitant here. Under the Sosa opinion, the court was supposed to decide two things. One, whether there's basically this international consensus on the, the norm involved. And two, whether despite that norm, the court should exercise judicial discretion to not create that because, um, because of the, the problems that could arise by courts kind of creating these new causes of action. And the, Justice Kennedy, uh, argues that this judicial discretion, uh, should be exercised here. The court should be hesitant to act where Congress hasn't acted. He says this applies equally to things like corporate liability, and it's a very heightened concern in foreign policy con- uh, context. Um, he says that the alien tort statute, the whole point of it, why it was passed in the first place to give foreigners a right to sue in American courts, was intended to serve international harmony by giving a procedure where um, foreigners who were aggrieved by some American could come into Amer- uh, U.S. courts and, and get, you know, some sort of remedy for that. But here, it's instead being used for the opposite by imposing massive U.S. liability for acts with only a tangential connection to the U.S. It's kind of stirring up all kinds of diplomatic tensions, uh, in this case with Jordan, who is a key U.S. counterterrorism ally. And for 13 years now, there's been this ongoing diplomatic tensions over this case. And also, he points out that numerous foreign governments have objected to uh, alien tort statute litigation in the U.S. because of they 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 feel the the uh, this uh, um, overbroad uh, extraterritorial application by the United States. So, um, so Kennedy basically says, you know, if the social language about the about the courts using this discretion before applying new causes of action is taken seriously, there should the, the court should not um, allow corporate liability in this case. Now. Um, Kennedy goes further than that in parts that weren't joined by all, by a majority of the court. Um, he, he also discusses some specific international tribunals and that you know exclude corporations from their liability coverage, um, and uh, and also spent some time looking at uh, some other um, American statutes that that uh, that um, 
he thinks are in some way analogous or have been argued to be in some way analogous um and and looks at those to ask you know whether what they suggest about that um but in any case uh moving on there were there were solo concurrences by both justice thomas and justice alito uh or i'm sorry justice thomas wrote a solo a sh- short solo occurrence concurrence he agreed with justice kennedy in its entirety but he also agrees with certain points that are made by Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch in their separate concurrences, and I'll get to those in a second. So Justice Alito wrote a concurrence. He, now, again, he only agreed with parts of Kennedy's opinion, but um, he, he went went further and, and argued basically he wants a bright-line rule that under the, the judicial discretion um, consideration under the Sosa case that basically he thinks that this should dispose of a case of, of the question anytime recognizing a new cause of action would exacerbate international tensions. Um, and he says here, it's very easy. International law clearly doesn't require corporate liability. Numerous nations don't provide corporate liability and numerous international treaties and, and tribunals don't have corporate liability. So it's obviously not required. So you can't be causing international strife by not allowing it. You're just doing the same thing that many other international institutions and countries don't do. Um, and he says it already has caused international problems by allowing this kind of corporate liability. So this is an easy case to say this is something they shouldn't, they shouldn't, um, they shouldn't allow. And then Justice Gorsuch has a separate concurrence. He goes further. He disagrees basically with the, with the whole framework of the Sosa case. He says that the alien tort statute, statute is basically out of step with the rest of federal law. Normally courts don't just create new causes of action when there's just a jurisdictional provision. He says this should be left to the legislature. And he, he says from here out, the court just shouldn't create any new causes of action under the alien tort statute. And he also raises another issue. Um, he, he believes that the alien tort statute actually shouldn't be read to cover a suit that's between a foreigner and another foreigner. It should only cover a suit, a suit brought by a foreigner against an American. Um, so that, that's a, that he realized he's basically relying on the specific language of the alien tort statute. And uh, he believes that it tracks a particular constitutional provision um, that provides for suits between uh, foreigners and uh, U.S. citizens. Um, and so, so he, he makes that separate claim. So then there's a very lengthy dissent by Justice Sotomayor where she basically completely rejects the majority's framing. Um, she says that Sosa's steps uh, apply only to international norms, whether it's this international norm exists against a particular human rights violation, for example. But the enforcement of the norms is left to domestic law. So this whole question of corporate liability is just a U.S. question and U.S. law corporate liability is, is very well established. And then she goes on to give a very lengthy analysis of various sources cited by the majority, international tribunals, international agreements, um, and, and, uh, and also the statutes cited by Justice Kennedy as, um, things to compare, uh, with, with this, uh, proposed cause of action. And just has a very different analysis of all of these and, and shows, kind of distinguishes why they, they, she believes they don't, they don't give support to the majority's opinion. Um, and that, uh, uh, she, she believes there shouldn't be basically an exception for these um, international, these alien tort um, claims from the normal principles in American law that allow corporate liability. Um, so that, that's just a, in brief, that's, that's uh, what this uh, alien tort statute case is about. Um, 
And with that, that brings us to the end of this live stream episode. Uh, our next episode will, next live stream will be a week from today, Thursday, May 3rd at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And our usual weekly live stream times are Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, but you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to see when the next scheduled live stream will be held. Um, next week's live stream, so tomorrow, that's uh, Friday, April 27th, the court has another of its private conferences. Um, so it will be issuing an orders list uh, Monday morning. There's a chance of new, as always, a chance of newly granted cases in Monday morning's order list. And... Um, it's, there's, it seems like there's a high likelihood that, that at least one or more opinions will come out on Monday just because, as I mentioned before, the court has a, a large backlog of unreleased opinions so far and we're starting to run out of time in the term. So there's decent odds, though there's been no announcement. We don't know yet for sure, but there's at least decent odds that we'll see uh, at least a few opinions um, coming out on Monday as well. So, um, that's what I hope, you know, depending on what comes out, I hope to talk about newly granted cases or new opinions in next week's live stream, but we'll see what happens. There's, of course, there's always the possibility of emergency orders, other interesting developments. So we'll, we'll take those as they come. And whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to the audio podcast, I'd love your feedback. You can leave comments on the show notes at counting to five.com on the counting to five YouTube channel or Facebook page. You can tweet at counting to five or send an email to Mike at counting to five.com. And please subscribe to the Counting to Five YouTube channel or audio podcast to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been Counting to Five.